Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. On this week's episode, I'm delighted to share with you another talk from our archives. This talk was given by Paul Mallard at the Pastoral Refreshment Conference in 2017. Thank you for your warm encouragement over these last couple of days. It has been good to be here. And uh, uh, it's good to be here in the, the Northwest. We are from the Southwest, although, of course, originally we are from the Midlands. I'm a pastor of a church in a place called uh, Bath, or if I pronounce it Bath. And uh, if you ever come into Bath, you'll, you'll know the church because you come on the railway station and you can see the roof of the church from the, uh, from the, from the train station. And uh, in the 1930s, they painted, it's got four sides to the roof, they painted texts on the roof in huge white letters, you must be born again. Jesus came to save sinners. And those texts have been there for a, for a number of years. About 20 years ago, a number of folk in Bath uh, objected to this. You know, Bath's a fairly posh place, and uh, they didn't like being reminded that they were sinners. <laughs> so they wrote to the local council and said, this is a deep offence to us. Will you please look into it and tell Wigcombe Baptist what to do? So the council had a meeting, and they looked into it, and they discovered that the, the paintings had been there by a group of uh, railwaymen um, who, who kind of came and lived in that kind of fairly working-class area during the 20s and 30s, and they'd been converted, they'd been a work of God's spirit, and they just wanted to tell what's well, so they, they've been there for a long time, so they, they looked at it for a while, and then they sent a letter to the church saying, we've had complaints about your text, we've looked into it, and we've decided, because of the, the time that it's been there, to put a preservation order on it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's nothing like the devil shooting himself in the foot. It's <laughs> wonderful when that happens. Our thing today is the Holy Spirit and fruitfulness, and um, we're going to look at Acts chapter uh, 2, and uh, a magnificent chapter. I, I think Acts chapter 2 is almost in the same category as Genesis chapter 1. Indeed, the, the themes are, are very similar. Uh, there's chaos, and there's uh, difficulty, and there's, there's, there's whatever, disorder. And then God enters in. God changes things by his word and his spirit, and a new world is born, as it were. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2 by the power of his word and the power of his spirit working together, the New Testament church comes into existence. You'll know the chapter very well, I'm sure, uh, but I'm just going to read a number of verses to get a feel for it, and then we'll launch into it. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues that uh, fire that spread and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then down to verse 14, they spill into the streets. People hear them speaking in their own tongues, in their own dialects, the great deeds of God. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood because before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hello, Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which you did among, uh, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 
And then Peter proves the resurrection first from the Old Testament. It's what the Old Testament predicted. And also from his experience as an apostle. We are witnesses of these things. And he comes to the conclusion of his sermon, verse 36. Verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other uh, words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is the word of the living God. I grew up in a in a, a house in Birmingham that had a very long, narrow garden, and uh, my dad wasn't a, a gardener, and he always kind of felt guilty that he ought to do something in the garden. So one day, this was in the 1960s, he saw an advertisement in the in the newspaper for conifer trees, 50 conifer trees for 12 shillings and sixpence. Okay, so he, he never had a bank account in all his life. He sent off a postal order and he left strict instructions with my mum. When they come and deliver the conifer trees, make sure the men take them down the entry to the back because I don't want you trying to cart them down. They'll be huge and heavy. Let the men do it. If the men won't do it, leave them in the front and when I come home, I'll do it for them. So he went off to work and he'd come back day after day. Have my trees arrived yet? No. My trees arrived yet? No. No sign of them? No. Until one day he came back and he said, are my trees alive? And my mom said, yeah, they're here. Oh, where are they? In the back? No, 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 no. They're in the front room on the table. <laughs> and so he went into the table and there was a box about six inches by three inches by four inches. And on the top it said, 50 con trees. Have you ever been conned? <laughs> anyway, he owns it up and there are 50 little sprigs about the size of my finger. That's all, my little finger. Well, Dad went into the garden and he planted 25 on one side and 25 on the other. My mum and sister left uh, that home in the early 21st century and the conifer trees had taken over. When you went into the garden, they kind of touched one another across this narrow garden. You put out your hands and you had nothing but conifer trees. You couldn't see the sun. We lost one of our kids down there for three days. <laughs> and I'm sure I saw Tarzan as I was searching for him. What's the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed. It's so small, so tiny, so insignificant, you can put on your hand and you barely can see it. And yet it will grow, says Jesus, until it becomes this great tree that all the birds of the air can come and land in. Brothers and sisters, we, 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 we look in our own nation today, and it's quite easy to be discouraged by, by the state of our nation. And I, 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 I can give you a list of things, but I'm not going to. Uh, but here's the great encouragement. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus will will have the glory and Jesus will have the honour and his kingdom will not fail. It may begin as a tiny mustard seed, but it will grow. Remember the story here in in, in Acts of the Apostles. Who are these men who who meet together on this particular day? Well, um, 11 demoralised men. They've seen Jesus crucified. Their master has died. Before they meet him, after the resurrection, they're broken men. Their hopes are dashed, their dreams are shattered, their future has evaporated. Fifty days later, when the Spirit comes, these men begin to turn the world upside down. Thirty years after Pentecost, there is a church established in every centre of population in the Roman Empire, in the great cities. There are clear sets of beliefs and practices. There's churches that are planting churches. There are second generation churches. The church is crossing over all the barriers that existed in the, in the first century. Slave and free are converted. Slaves and masters are meeting around the Lord's table. Men and women. Jews and Gentiles. 
And the Apostle Paul is in the city of Rome, preaching the gospel even in the palace of the Caesar. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, and something between one and a half and two billion people give at least some formal recognition to Jesus Christ as Lord. He will build his church. I want you to go away being encouraged to your ministries. Can you do that? Well, you're not sure about that. Well, well, that's my job, isn't it? Oh, oh, that's God's work through his spirit. I suppose as we come to this passage. We're going to look at at Acts chapter 2 very briefly. And uh, before we do, just a little bit of theology. Is it a culmination or is it an inauguration? Is it a culmination? Some theologians say it's a unique event in history, unrepeatable, and so we kind of learn about it, that that's it, it's done and dusted, and there's some truth in that. Pentecost, this moment in time, is indeed a unique event. There can never be an event quite like this. It's in the same order as as the incarnation and the uh, cross and the resurrection. Jesus ascends to heaven and at the Father's right hand, in in an amazing and cataclysmic moment, he gives the gift of the Spirit to the church. It's like the breath of God coming into the church for the very first time. The New Testament church is born. And so it's unique. There's never been anything quite like Pentecost since. In that sense, it's unique. But I want to, I want to say that there's something else we can learn from this. It's also an inauguration. This is the beginning of the age of the Holy Spirit. This is the moment when the Spirit has come on all flesh. Everything is different. You can read the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is present throughout the Old Testament. Of course he's present, but but sometimes in shadowy ways, only on individuals, even with a hint from time to time that he might leave individuals. But now, says, says Peter, the Spirit has come on all flesh. Every believer knows the power of the Spirit in their life. This is a new age. The age of the Holy Spirit. I, 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 studied the, uh, the, the spirit in the Old Testament, and there's some wonderful things you can read about there. For example, uh, the whole of creation, if the spirit is the law, the giver of life, the whole of creation, every time you walk through the, through the woods in, in the spring and you see life, that's the work of the spirit. He's the one who renews the face of the earth. It's a wonderful phrase in, in one of the, uh, uh, I think it's in Job, the Holy Spirit garnishes creation. You know what it garnishes? You kind of put it on your food to make it look special. You know, have a posh meal for a couple of years ago on our wedding anniversary. My wife said, I want you to take me for a meal. I said, that's right, darling. She said, but I want you to take me somewhere special for a change. I said, well, what's special? She said, where they put a garnish on the food. So I took her to McDonald's. But, um, <laughs> not really. That's what he does in creation. He's always been present. He's been present from Genesis 1 too. He's been present in eternity. But now... Post-Pentecost, we are living in Pentecostal days. We are all Pentecostals here, aren't we? You're not so sure about that, are you? Some of you are. We are all Pentecostals. How can you have anybody who's not a Pentecostal? What is the Pentecostal blessing of the church? Well, I want to see four things from this passage this morning. Four things that, that are just headline, really. I mean, we could spend a, a, a session on each one of them. Four things that happen on the day of Pentecost. Four things that mark the church today, or mark God's work in the world today. Number one, the church, the church is filled with God's presence. The church is filled with God's presence. That's the first mark of Pentecost. Look at verse one. Uh, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. You'll, you'll know if you've studied the Greek, it, it's, it's a very emphatic phrase. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. In other words, this is the day that God chose to do something special. And there's no accident there. It's deliberate. It's specific. Passover was the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. They, now, they then counted 50 days, and the 50th day was Pentecost. Or Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, is also known as the Feast of First Fruits. Because on this particular day, you've got a flavour of what the full harvest would be like in the autumn. You go to your fields at first fruits, and there's a meagre crop, and you take a a meagre offering into the temple, and you kind of say, well, it's going to be pretty tough this autumn. We're going to have to tighten our belts. Or you go into the fields, and there's an abundant crop. There's a magnificent crop. So you take a magnificent uh, sacrifice into the temple of the first fruits, and you say, God has really blessed us. Look at how much we've got now. Look at how much we're going to get when the full harvest comes. 
And think about the significance of that for a moment. Has anyone ever been in a meeting where 3,000 people were converted? I mean, when, when we have one or two people converted in our churches, we put the flags up, don't we? When revival comes, there are hundreds under, under, under the work of the Spirit. But, but, but 3,000 people? What's God saying? What God's saying is, this is the first race. This is the beginning of the harvest. If the beginning of the harvest looks like this, what's the full harvest going to be like? Uh, my wife and I, I've said it before, we, we love going to Keswick. We love the singing at Keswick apart from everything else. And it's wonderful when you're in a crowd in a tent with 3,000 people. And it kind of gives you a foretaste of heaven. But you know, when you've got 3,000 people, that's, that's, that's quite a lot of people. Can you imagine what it's like when there are so many people there that you can't number them? Myriads and myriads and myriads of people all praising Jesus. That's what we were doing in that, in that, that, uh, that time of worship before. When they asked D.L. Moody, Mr. Moody, when you get to heaven, what will you do? He said, I'll spend a thousand years gazing on the lamb who was slain and then I might look around and see what else is there. <laughs> yeah, but that's the foretaste, a number that no man can count. That's why it's on this particular day. That's why it's quite deliberate. But then notice the, the signs that happen in verses 2, 3, and 4. There are three signs, the sign of wind and fire and tongues. And we'll come on to tongues a little bit later. Just look at the signs of wind and fire. What I want you to notice is the first word in verse 2, suddenly. This is a dynamic, unique, supernatural, miraculous event. Pentecost is not the result of a committee meeting, for which we all want to say hallelujah. Because <laughs> if we had a committee meeting to organise, it would be in real trouble. No, no, this is God breaking into history. This is God invading history with signs that are visible and audible and tangible. Take the first two signs, the wind and the fire. Verse 2, look at verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. This is not a, a gentle breeze. This is a heavenly hurricane. This is the invincible power of God. This is the irresistible life of God. This is the, the life of God coming into the church of God. Remember Ezekiel's vision of the, of the valley of dry bones and they're very dry. And he prophesies to the bones, the word comes and they stand on their, on their feet, but they still can't have life, they don't have flesh. What do you need? Prophesy to the wind. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the spirit. And the life of God invades these bones and there they stand, the mighty army. What's happening on the day of Pentecost? The life of God is being breathed into the church. What about the fire? Well, John the Baptist predicted, didn't he, that, that the one who comes will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What's God doing? God is coming in a holy way amongst his people. Pentecost is purity, that the purity of God, the fire of God that burns up the dross. We, we, we often pray for revival, don't we? Do we really understand what it means? And we said revival is not going down the road with a big drum, it's going back to Calvary with a big sob. And the side, but can, can I suggest to you that actually, if you put them together, what, what they represent is the presence of God coming to dwell in his church. That's what's happening here. Fire is a symbol of God's presence. He speaks to, God, uh, to Moses out of the burning bush. The, the pillar of fire is the presence of God leading his people. Wind is a symbol of God. God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. Ezekiel sees the whirlwind power of God, the presence of God. What's actually happening here? God is coming to dwell amongst his people. What's the most exciting thing about your church? Let me tell you, it's not you. Okay, it's not your music group. It's not your, 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 your plans and your purposes. It's the most exciting thing about your church. The most scary thing, the most awesome thing about your church is that when you come together as the people of God, uh, God uh, uh, and the Lord's day, in, in, in the power of the Spirit, God is present. God is coming and invading the people. Isn't that exciting? Now we often look at the world and we say, well, what can we do to win the world? And, and there are lots of things we should do, and, and I'm all in favour of being progressive and, and trying to kind of reach the world where, where the best way we can. But in the end, what does the world need the church to be? The world needs the church to be the church. It needs the church to be the dwelling place of God. One of my elders, when I was in Chippenham, used to go over to the States quite regularly. 
And he went to Washington, and on a Sunday he'd always go to a Baptist church in Washington. And this was the church where President Jimmy Carter went. And uh, for a number of years, President Jimmy Carter had been worshipping. Remember Jimmy Carter? And uh, my, my friend would say, sometimes you saw the president, sometimes you didn't. He said, you, you go to the, you go to the front of the church and you sit there, and, 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 and the front row was always left empty. And then you'd see these, these men walking down the aisle with their, you know, crew crops and talking into their ears and kind of thing, microphones, and you knew that that day the president was coming. So he said, you, you, you'd seen the first hymn, the president would come, and some Mrs. Carter and their daughter, and then the last hymn, they'd leave. And he once asked the pastor of this church, he said, do you think people ever come to your church because the president comes, you know, come and see the president? And he said, the pastor smiled at him, he said, every week, without fail, there's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a phone call to the office, oh, what time your service on Sunday morning? And so, and will the president be there? And we always have the standard response. We have no idea. Security service don't tell us, but let us tell you this. If you come to our service on Sunday morning, you will meet someone far more important than the President of the United States of America. God's going to be there. God is going to be there. Brothers and sisters, that's our longing, isn't it? To know something of the presence of God. That's the Pentecostal blessing. That's what happens on the day of Pentecost. God comes and visits his people. That's what happens in revival. Revival is God coming amongst his people. It's a wonderful book, I'm not sure it's on our bookstore, by Brian Edwards on the subject of revival. And he takes up this theme, what happens when revival takes place? Those are two little boys in Roche in, in, in uh, Wales in the time of the Welsh revival. And they were talking to one another. One said to the other, it's amazing what's happening in our town. It's like Sunday every day. People are praying and they're, what's happened in our town? And, and, and his friend said, oh, that's easy. That's easy. Jesus has come to live in our town. Jesus has come to live in our town. The presence of God in the midst of his people. When I was in Worcester, we had a prayer meeting that lasted for 10 years. Well, not. It's a break in between, but every Monday morning from 7 to 8, we prayed. And there was only a group of about six or seven of us, but we prayed every week for revival. And we had a, one old boy who'd been around the block for a while, and he always used to pray the same. He said, Lord, we long for revival. We long for your presence. We long for you to come and, and, and show your presence in the midst of, our, of, of us, Lord. But, Lord, help us to be aware if that happens, it won't be comfortable. It'll be painful. But what happens when we meet God? R.A. Torrey was a, a, a famous evangelist of a previous generation, and he was visiting a, a farmer once, and he noticed that the farmer ploughed his field in perfect lines. In the middle of the field, there was a stump of an old tree. When the farmer got to the tree, he kind of went around it and went to the other side, and then he came back, found it, and down to the other side. And Tori was fascinated by this, so he said, well, that's, you know, that's amazing how you do straight lines, just imagine, but that stump in the middle. And the man said, oh, well, yeah, that was there in my grandfather's time. This would be a tree that struck by lightning, they chopped the tree down, they took the tree off, the, the, the firewood, the, the stump is there, was there in my father's time, and I guess it'll be there in my son's time. And, and Tori said, well, that's, that's very interesting, but have you never thought of pulling the stump up? And the man said, well, it was there in my grandfather's time, it was there in my father's time. It has never occurred to him, he just went round it. Do you know, brothers and sisters, there are sins in our lives like that. There are sins in our churches like that. We have got so used to them, we're so familiar with them, that they don't shock us anymore. I meet regularly with young men who have come to the point where they are shocked and horrified that they're looking at pornography. And they say, can we pray with you about that? And, and I have to be kind of an accountability all the time, wanting to protect my own heart from, from the lure of peace. And here's the point. I can't help them till they get to the point that they realize there's a stump there and it needs pulling up. What's the stump in your life? What about pride? My wife has a book on graphology. You know, graphology is reading handwriting. And there's a chapter about, about do your signature. What does your signature show about you? I thought this is interesting. I did my signature and I looked it up and it said that whoever has this signature is confused and disorganized and they are self-confident to the point of pride and arrogance. Uh, 
Christology is rubbish. <laughs> Christology is absolute rubbish. I don't know whether that works or not. You know, what does your handwriting show about? But I know my own heart is full of pride. Every day I have to come to the cross. Every day I have to say, God, please, please, keep me on my knees at Calvary. Keep me on my knees close to the cross. Keep my eyes on the Saviour who poured out his life. What will happen if God really visits our churches? When there was revival in the head of these, they said it was awful in the church in those days, using the word awful in the proper sense. It was awesome. God did this. On the day of Pentecost, he comes in wind, not a little breeze, but a heavenly hurricane. He comes in fire. That burns That's the first thing. The presence of God fills the church. Number two, the preaching of God or the word of God is filled with God's power. The word of God is filled with God's power. Look at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. And listen. One of the first signs of the coming of the Spirit is the preaching of the Word. Indeed, most of this chapter from verse 14 down to verse 39 is the record of uh, of Peter's sermon. Peter preaches in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, and in chapter 5. There are six or seven uh, recorded sermons of Paul. You also have a long sermon by Stephen and a sermon by Philip. Out of the cloister into the street, they proclaim God's word. They preach the word to Jews and pagans. They preach it to kings and crowds and individuals. They preach it in the synagogue, in the temple, in the open air. They preach it in homes. They preach it in prisons. They preach it when they're on trial for their lives. And they preach it in the midst of a storm. One of the things that is very obvious and very clear, if you take Acts chapter 2, is that the Holy Spirit loves the preaching of God's word. The Holy Spirit loves preaching. I mean, Kevin, he's okay, isn't it? Because the Holy Spirit loves preaching. That's right, isn't it? Come on. <laughs> it's great to go and hear preaching. Uh, good, good, nice enthusiasm. Because the Holy Spirit loves preaching. Don't let's drive a wedge between the preaching and the proclamation of God's word. Now, for some of you, that, that's what you need to hear today. When you go into the pulpit on Sunday, you're doing what the Holy Spirit loves. He loves the proclamation of the word. I find that incredibly encouraging. I wouldn't dare preach if I didn't think that I was doing something that God wanted me to do. For some of you, don't preach. That doesn't let you off the hook. Because actually, it's not just preaching the Holy Spirit. He loves the word of God. He loves the, but the, any way in which God's word is, is, is proclaimed. There are 26 verbs in the book of Acts. It talks about the people arguing and persuading and witnessing and, and uh, reasoning, and, and doing all sorts of things. Not just public proclamation that the Spirit loves. The famous story about Dr. Billy Graham, and he was at the point in the crusade where, you know, he's given them the, the altar call, and they're streaming down. And Billy Graham was on the platform, standing next to a fairly well-known uh, minister, and uh, he, he kind of turned across to the minister, and he whispered in his ear, as these crowds keep coming down, yesterday, Yesterday, I had my hair cut. And I'm like, I can't believe that. I can't believe that he's talking about something as mundane as that in this solemn moment when matters of eternity are being decided. I must have, I must have misheard it. Excuse me, Dr. Graham, what did you say? Yesterday, said Billy Graham. Yesterday, I had my hair cut. You see that man walking down there? That's my barber. <laughs> <laughs> see the point? He's not just proclaiming it from the pulpit. When you stick him in a, in a, in a barber shop, he's talking to the guy who's cutting his hair. When I was in Cambridge, we had a guy who used to cut hair, and he was brilliant because he was very cheap. He was also we called him the Pentecostal barber because he came from the Pentecostal church. And the moment he got you in the chair, the texts were all over there. And the students still went to him because they, they knew what they were going to get. But the texts were there, and he preached the gospel. Yeah, and if you were having, these were the days when you'd have a shave with an open razor, you've got a razor at your throat. <laughs> Fairly persuasive. The Holy Spirit loves God's word. But here's, here's something that's a challenge for us this morning. It's a challenge for me. Challenge for all of us. I, 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 I kind of, one of the themes of, I guess that I, I, I think you've laid on my heart for these couple of days. The word in itself's not enough. 
The word in itself is not enough. It, it has to be the word in the spirit. Uh, over my years of preaching, the one thing that I've come to realize is that I can prepare sermons okay, I can, I can understand the text, but, but actually that's not enough. Now, heaven forfend that preaching could be boring. And yet some of us preach boring sermons. I preach boring sermons sometimes. It's treacherous, isn't it? No man who was preaching and, and he was in his 40th minute and he looked down and there on the front row was a husband and a wife and the husband had gone to sleep. And, and this was terrible. He points at the wife and said, Madam, your husband is, is asleep. Wake him up! To which she responded, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. <laughs> boring preaching, Steve Brady says, is an oxymoron. In other words, two words that should never go together. Think of the, 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 the subject that we have, Jesus Christ and him crucified and him risen from the dead and, and, and the eternal purposes of God. How on earth do we ever turn that into something boring? We need the touch of the Holy Spirit. Someone said preaching is truth coming through a man or a woman who's on fire. How do you, how do you bring a revival in a church like a fire under the pulpit? Pray for those who preach to you. Pray that they might not just get the text right, but that it might come with the power of God. When they asked George Whitfield if they could print his sermon, if you ever read Whitfield's sermon, Martin Moore Jones believed Whitfield was the greatest evangelist that Britain has ever produced, um, or England anyway. And, and Whitfield, when you read his sermons, they, they, they kind of sound very mundane. But when he preached, people were converted in the groves. And when they asked him, first of all, can, can we print your sermons? He said, well, yeah, you can print my sermons, but can you print the thunder and the lightning as well? Can you print the, he said, what's happening? God is coming. Preaching is not just carefully explaining a text and teaching the Bible. Preaching, can I suggest, is an event when God comes <coughs> and speaks the power of his word in the power of his spirit into the lives of men and women and transforms them. has to begin with the mind, otherwise it's just emotionalism. It has to be the truth, it has to touch the mind first, but if it touches the mind, it has to touch the heart. It has to move the emotions. And then it has to move the will. That's what real preaching should do. We don't have time to develop this. Just notice three things about the sermon, just, just by way of, of kind of... Uh, flagging this up, there are three things about this first Pentecostal sermon. Number one, it's Bible-based. There are 25 verses, 12 of them are quotations from the Old Testament, and nine of them are explanations of those quotations. Sermon goes, introduction, question-answer, question-answer, uh, sorry, quotation-explanation, 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 application. What does Peter do? He opens the Scriptures. We stand in front of God's people and we open the Scriptures. We have the authority of heaven. It's, it's Bible-based, and it's Christ-centered. The heart and guts of the sermon is, is Christ. It's a Trinitarian sermon. The Father is mentioned eight times. The Holy Spirit is mentioned at the beginning and the end. But, but it's all about Jesus. All about Jesus, his cross, and principally his resurrection. We have evidence for his resurrection. The Old Testament predicted it. The apostles have seen it. There's a third reason or a third evidence for the resurrection that we'll come on to in a moment. Remember once being asked to go and preach at... Um, at a, a, a strict and particular Baptist church in the Midlands. And uh, they were very strict. Actually, they were very particular. I don't know why they had names, but it was the highest pulpit I've ever been in. You kind of go up the stairs, and then you go up further, and then you kind of just, like, your head is almost touching the roof. And if you're in the front row, in the very wooden, wooden, they call them forms, not pews, forms. And they look like coffins, but you know, if you're if you're on the front row, you're actually almost staring vertically up and, and you're way up here. And in the pulpit, for the very first time, um, there were three things. First of all, a Bible, and then a text. <laughs> Smelling salts. They were for me or for the congregation. I don't know what. Yeah, it was very high. But this was the text. And it was written across the front of the pulpit. Sirs. Burden said, whatever the text, go to the text, explain the text, and make your way to Jesus. Jesus, who died on the cross, Jesus who rose from the dead. A great emphasis here is on the resurrection. Here is the moment in history when everything changes. The tectonic planks move. Christ is risen. 
Bible-based and it's uh, Christ-centered and it's gospel-driven. It's gospel-driven. Do you notice how uh, it's constantly calling for a response? Uh, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look at verse 23. You crucified the Lord of glory. I imagine Peter, you know, shaking his finger at them. That's what you did. What must we do? This is what you must do. And verse 37, they were cut to the heart. Brothers and sisters, when we preach the word in the power of the Spirit, we have to have passion in it, and we have to have passion that pleads with lost people. Someone said, sometimes we preach with a ton of truth and an ounce of passion. Ton of truth and an ounce of passion. Two weeks ago, I was preaching on the rich man and Lazarus. I'm preaching on the subject of hell. And I have to say, I, 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 I hate preaching on that subject. I would do anything that I, I, I could to avoid preaching on it, but when you're preaching for a book, you've got to do it. And I stand in the pulpit, and it's a good job that there's a pulpit in front of me, because I have to grip it as I'm preaching. Because in front of me, there are men and women, eternal beings who are going to live forever in heaven and hell, one or the other. And it's, it's a huge thing, huge thing. Gospel driven, pleading with the lost to be saved. For the word is filled with God's power. Number three, the nations are filled with God's salvation. The nations are filled with God's salvation. Verse 37, what happens? They're cut to the heart. What must we do? And he explains what they have to do. And verse 30, uh, verse 41, 3,000 are converted. 3,000 are converted. What happens on the day of Pentecost? The, not just that the church is born, but the mission of the church is born. And the mission of the church is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The mission of the church is to take the gospel to the nations. Now, you remember that there were three signs. The first sign is wind and fire. The, the, the third sign is the gift of tongues. Can I speak about the gift of tongues? Is that allowed? Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to tell you what I believe, and then, and then, as soon as I'm finished preaching, I'm going to get in my car and drive 200 miles south. So there you go. The gift of tongues. Four things. Okay. Number one, I believe that on the day of Pentecost, it was real languages that were understood. It may have been something else elsewhere, but that's what it is on the day of Pentecost. Number two, they are languages that declare the great deeds of God. What I think that is happening is they're declaring what God has just done. In essence, what Peter is preaching about, they're declaring God's greatness, they're declaring God's Son, they're declaring the resurrection, they're declaring the gospel. Number three, could God give the gift of tongues to people today? My answer to that is, why not? He is God, he's sovereign. If he wants to, then he can do that. And who are we to argue with it? Is it for the same purpose or the same reason? Well, there is stuff in 1 Corinthians that we're not going into that we could think about. But I'm not a cessationist. Some people are, and I honour them, but I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. Number four, should every Christian demand or expect the gift of tongues? I don't think the Bible teaches that either. I'm not sure that it's a gift that we can say that's a gift I, I must have, and if I don't have it, there's something wrong with me. Okay? Let's have a vote. Oh, no, let's not. Okay, we'll leave it at that. But what is the significance of it? That's the big thing. What's the significance of it? Because it, it's significant for a particular reason. What happens? Verses 5 and 6, they're, 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 they're talking to God, they're declaring his graces. Verses 5 and 6, they spill onto the street. Goes out of the cloister, into the street. Look at verse 6. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together, bewildered, because each of them heard his own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked... Aren't all these speaking Galileans? Now the point of that is these are uneducated people with a regional dialect. It's barbaric. It's, you know, it's, it's as much as if somebody from, from Manchester was doing it, or, or, or Glasgow, or, or heaven forfend Birmingham. Can you imagine an uneducated brother? And yet they are, they are speaking our languages. We recognize it. What on earth is going on? Speaking in our own dialects for that. And then you've got this list that kind of basically goes around the Roman Empire. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Potan, so on, so on, so on, so on. Fifteen nations of the diaspora. What does Peter say? Well, this is happening because actually we're in the last days. First thing that he says, quoting from Joel, we are in the last days. The last days have arrived, and what's the sign of the last day? The Spirit is poured on all flesh, not just Jews anymore. What's happening on the day of Pentecost is the reversal of the power of the Bible. 
The Tower of Babel, God comes in judgment and he spreads the nations. And he begins his work with one man, Abraham, who becomes a family, who becomes a nation. And God's purpose was always to bless the world through Abraham. Through your seed, I'll bless all nations. Israel was always supposed to be a light to light the Gentiles. There are always moments of God going beyond the, the boundaries, people like Ruth and Rahab and so on. But, but now, God is saying that the doors are open for all the nations. In his ministry, even Jesus said, just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel until he dies and rises again. And now he says, make disciples of all nations. Pentecost, Pentecost is a mission event. It's the new covenant. And new covenant is for all people. When you get that, read Exodus 32. And in Exodus 32, the beginning of the old covenant, Moses goes up onto the mountain, he receives the law, he comes down, the people are worshipping a false god, and so there is condemnation. And a number of people are killed. What happens at the beginning of the new covenant? The Son of God, greater than Moses, ascends not to the mountain, but to heaven for his Father. He receives not the gift of the law, but the gift of the Spirit. He pours out the Spirit. And what happens? Not condemnation, but salvation. Let me ask you a question. Who knows Exodus 32 well enough to know how many people died when Moses came down from the mountain? Anybody know? 3,000 people. And on this day, 3,000 people converted. The work of the Spirit, the heart of the Spirit, the longing of the Spirit, the emphasis of the Spirit is the gospel to the nations. And if we want to know the fruitfulness and the blessing of God's Spirit, we have to be Christians whose heart is for the whole world. That's another great thing about the Keswick movement, that the number of people, you you go on on a Thursday evening and, and people come forward for mission work. And, and I, I've been going enough years to meet people who made that response and now on the mission field now back on furlough. And that's where they heard that call to go to the ends of the earth. And it's a gospel that reaches out to all sorts of people. I, I'm going back in, in a few minutes. I, I do promise you I am almost finished. I've only got one more point and then we'll be, we'll be done and dusted. But um, I'm going back because my, my mum is dying. Um, my my mum's 90 ready to, to, to go. Um, my dad was converted 30 odd years ago. When my mum became a Christian, she, she, oh, sorry, when my dad became a Christian, my mum hated the gospel because it had robbed her of her husband. And she said consistently, I'm never ever going in a church again. The next time I go in a church, it will be in a box. And then my dad died of cancer. Made it even worse. She went to his funeral and that was it. When she was 83, seven years ago, she was so seriously ill, I thought that was the end. And so I, I went to see her, and I held her hand, and I said, Mom, can I ask you a question? And she said, yes. I said, do you know where Dad is? She said, he's in heaven. And I said, do you know how to get to heaven? She said, no. I said, would you like me to tell you? She said, yes, please. So she had the gospel with her. And when I finished, was silent for a minute, and then she said, could I become a Christian? Even now? And I prayed with her. And she didn't die, she got better, well, not much better, she was in a wheelchair and everything, but on the very first Sunday she could go to church, she went to church. And when they were serving communion, up down the line, she got to her with the bread and the wine, she looked down at me and she went, <laughs> Three weeks ago, when my wife, when my, my mom became very, very ill, I, I went to see her, and I don't know whether she understood much anymore, but I whispered in an area, soon and very soon you can see that. And, and they were never together as a Christian couple. They never loved the Lord at the same time. Dad died when he was 60. Mum became a Christian 30 years later at the age of 83. But very soon, because of the gospel, they're going to be together in heaven. And they're going to look at one another and they're going to look at Jesus. Isn't the gospel wonderful? Isn't it marvellous? Isn't it through your heart? One last thing and then we're done. One last thing. The world is filled with God's glory. The world is filled 
with God's glory. What happens as a result of Pentecost? Well, we've seen a number of things. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What happens if the church comes into existence? And what is the church? The church in which God dwells is the presence and the glory of God in this world. That's what we read on our first afternoon. We looked at that great prayer. And that what does Paul say? That now to him is able to be more abundantly than ever. We ask our imagine, may there be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus. I can understand glory in creation, but the church and a bit of an anticlimax. No. Your church, where you serve, is at the heart and the centre and the purpose of God's purposes on this earth. He loves his church. He's building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And it is an amazing privilege to serve the church. Isn't it, brothers and sisters? Slightly more enthusiasm, please. Isn't it wonderful to serve the church? Which is the focal point of the purpose of God in this age. Where his glory is seen. And you might say, well, yeah, maybe generally speaking, but not my church. You have seen my church. It doesn't look like that. I used to visit an old uh, Christian guy in a, in a retirement home, Mr. Blackman. And he was, a, he was a Wiltshire man and he'd fallen in love with his, with his wife when they were at school together. And they'd been married for 70 years. And here they were, both in their 90s, in this old people's retirement home. And, 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 and she would sit by the window so she could do her crochet, whether it wasn't. He would sit by the door. And then she would come across when it was time for the evening service. And I'm sat there with him, I'm about to speak, and, and Mrs. Blackman gets on her, her Zimmer frame, and she's in her mid-90s now, and she's kind of coming across the, the room, and, and, and uh, one stocking is down her ankle, and she looks like Nora Batty on a bad day, and she's kind of going across the, the room like this, and, and you know, she, she looks 95 years old. And he looks at her, and he looks at me, and he tears up and says, that's my girl. Ain't she beautiful? And I thought, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> you see me, I'm a bit older, but that's how he sees her. She's his girl. She's precious to him. And how does he see your church? It's his girl that he died. And it's precious. And he loves it. And it is the focal point of his purpose and his glory in this world. Brothers and sisters, we are called Amazingly, amazing to serve that church. Isn't it a privilege? Isn't it a joy? I know it's hard work. I know it costs us. Like I said at the very beginning, it costs us to serve. We, we serve out of brokenness. Why is it that so many of us here this weekend are, 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 are suffering in a whole range of ways, whether it's physical or or relational or where why 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 does the Lord allow those things? Because out of our brokenness he ministers to his people so that they can minister into a broken world to bring about his purpose. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Truth comes from a heart that is broken and yet is willing to submit to the purpose of God, whatever that might be. And this is only one day joys of being with God's people forever would just overwhelm anything that we face in this world that breaks out. I don't know whether you've ever used those old-fashioned uh, 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 weighing things. What do they call them? Um, scales. That's it. I, I, I know nothing about cooking. You use the scales and you put, the, you put the, the, the ingredients on the one side and you put the weights on the other. Do you ever do that? I suppose all electronic these days. You know, you're making a cake. So you put the, the, the flour on one side and the whites, so you get, or you, you, you put the um, uh, butter, <laughs> margarine, <laughs> eggs, sardines, I don't know, and, 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 and you weigh them. Now this is about all of the pain that you will go through, whether as a believer or whether as a servant of God or wherever it is, if you were to put them all in the one scale pan and a weigh them, the sacrifices you've made for Christ because you love him, down will go the scale pan because it's heavy being in this world. It is. Then we'll get to heaven and we'll see Jesus and we'll behold him in his glory. Do you know what will happen? One second, one moment, gazing at the Lamb, and the other side of the scale pan will go bang! Bang! 
because the glory that is waiting for us is an exceeding weight of glory compared with whatever we might have to go through. The best is yet to Let's pray. Father, we want to pray that our churches might be filled with your glory. We want to pray, Father, that our ministry of your word may be filled with the power of your spirit. We want to pray that the nations may be filled with the good news of the gospel. Forgive us, Lord, when we're parochial. Help us to preach with passion, with hearts yearning for people to be saved. And Lord, help us to rejoice that we are called to serve the bride of Christ, his sweetheart, his love. Help us to do so with an eye to turn, to looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its time, shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. We ask it in his precious name. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.